With that, open up your Bibles, if they're not already open, to the book of James. Uh, we pick up our study this morning in James with a helpful uh, clarification, an aside from Jesus' half-brother. Uh, he probably recognizes that he has just given the most counterintuitive, countercultural counsel anyone can be given. You recall from our study last week, he says, when you endure trials and suffering, count these things as joy to you. And he went on to say it's because when this happens enough times, what these trials are going to do is be kind of build within you a spiritual toughness, and if that continues, they will make you whole, make you resolute without lack. Now, last week, our focus was on sufferings. This morning, our focus is going to be on something that, that often, not always, but often accompanies uh, trials and suffering, and that is wisdom. And this is where the Bible just shines. Now, if you recall in our introduction to the book of James, I said it's, in our culture, it's knowledge that gets all the attention and all the glamour. You know, AI, global information systems, real-time data, faster and smaller processors that give us cooler and uh, cooler uh, uh, gadgets. But we made the point that when you think about our lives, it is rarely knowledge that is a source of our problems. Relationships never break down because you didn't get the latest smartphones, right? It, it is actual heart-to-heart -heart conversations that connect us, not gigabit Ethernet in real-time data. You know, it, it is not FaceTime, but quality and quantity time that matters in our lives. So it's not knowledge issues that cause problems. It's areas of just having wisdom, which, as we said, was the application of knowledge. And this is where the Bible truly shines. And we're going to see that very clearly in these seven verses. That may seem a bit discombobulated as we read them, but as you'll soon see, makes perfect sense. Now, this is how James connects verses 5 through 11 with what came before. You know, his concluding thought last week was, hey, brothers and sisters, look forward to that day when you stand before the Lord, when you stand before Him complete, lacking in nothing. But for the time being, I do suspect some of you lack, and we see that. Notice at the end of verse 4, he talks about lacking nothing, but the very beginning of verse 5, he talks about them lacking. So he's making this connection. He says, yeah, look forward to the day when these trials and sufferings have made you what you ought to be, lacking nothing, but I think right now some of you probably do lack. It might be, for example, that you don't see life in the way that I just laid it out for you, James is writing. All you see in your life is that it's such a tangled situation. There's no way that this possibly could be a stepping stone to, to maturity and godly integrity. All you see is a purposeless mess. In short, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to see that all of life's situations, the good and the bad, as serving the purposes of the Lord. Or it might be that James recognizes that some of these people get it. They, they understand and can embrace the idea that God uses all things, including our suffering and trials, to make us more mature in Christ. But knowing doesn't really necessarily help them know what to do next, what situation, how to choose in life. There are many ways opening ahead of them, and they're not sure what to choose. Uncertainty is in their face. They need wisdom as well. So whether they have a hard time understanding what James just said, or they get it and embrace it but still don't know what to do, either one of them need wisdom. 
So in these seven verses, James is going to talk about the pursuit of wisdom in verses 5 through 8, and then quickly he talks about the application of that wisdom in verses 9 through 11. That's what our passage, that's how our passage breaks down this morning. So, let's start with the pursuit of wisdom. James gives us really good counsel as he starts out of the gate in verse 5 and verse 6. He answers three important questions when it comes to wisdom. Who to ask for wisdom, why we should be asking for wisdom, and how we ask for wisdom. So, who to ask for wisdom, why we should be asking for this wisdom, and how we actually go about asking for wisdom. Let's look at it one at a time. Who to ask for wisdom. Let's start there. I know it's, it may seem so obvious, but it needs to be stated. If you need wisdom, if you want wisdom in your life, go to its source. James is saying, if you need wisdom, ask God. And this is really important to think in our culture because there's so many apparent avenues of wisdom. But James is saying, look, if you need to know, if, if you need to know what you should do, seek God. Don't do a Google search. Don't even bother with Siri. Don't bother running to, to a Dear Abby column or an online search or calling the Adam Carolla or Dr. Drew show. You need to seek God. When we have situations and questions in life, is your first impulse to go to God's Word? James says we go to God because He first and primarily is the fount of all wisdom. Now, in the wisdom literature, uh, you know, the books of the Bible like Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Job, Job actually wrestles with this issue in Job chapter 28. Now, write that down because you really want to read this chapter later because Job is asking the same question. In chapter 28, verse 12, Job says, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? What's interesting is if you know the story of Job, what is Job known for? Suffering and trials. So it's not coincidental that the later portion of the book of Job changes focus to wisdom. And he asks in chapter 28, where can I find wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? And after thinking about it a little bit more in verse 15, he recognizes that pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. Further in that chapter, in verse 18, Job concludes that the price of wisdom is more valuable than anything, more valuable than pearls. And then in verse 23, he says, God understands wisdom. He knows where its place is, and the chapter ends. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of God, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So right in the wisdom literature, Job himself is asking the question, where can I find wisdom? God knows its source. The fear of God, that is wisdom. It's reminiscent of Psalm chapter 111, verse 10. It says this, the fear of the Lord, note, is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow His precepts have good understanding. Proverbs 9.10 says the same kind of thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, friends, the Scripture itself is attesting to we go to God to ask for wisdom. So often when people think of the Bible, maybe you don't think of it this way, but certainly the world around us, they think of the Bible as a, a kind of good book about morals, it talks about heaven and hell and things like forgiveness and eternal life, but the Bible is a whole repository page upon page of wisdom. 
Wisdom is the skill in living, and every page of the Bible contains this wisdom. It's, yes, it is about heaven and hell. It's about forgiveness. It's about eternal life. But it's also about how do I reconcile fragmented relationships? How do I make do when financial means are limited? How do I live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity? Anything you need to know, the Bible provides wisdom. Now, the Bible's not going to tell you who to marry, right? In Bible college, you'd think that because every time people, oh, that was what we'd say, God told me I should marry you, but that's not what the Bible is for, right? But the Bible does tell you what kind of spouse to be, how to love your family well, how to serve your family well. The Bible's not going to tell you where to live, but it will tell you page after page what kind of neighbor you need to be to the people that you live closest by. The Bible's not going to tell you what kind of job to get, but the Bible's going to tell you how to be the kind of employee that serves so well to the glory of God that people take notice. The Bible is full of the wisdom we need for life. And so we can't just assume we know we go to God. Does it show in your life that you go to God through His Word for wisdom? So James says, who do we go for wisdom? And then why do we ask for wisdom? See, all this is just in verse 5 right there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God two reasons. Number one, because we really need it, and God is going to give it graciously. So, the fact that we need wisdom is pretty self-evident. What is not as self-evident is that God is a gracious and generous God. Do you believe that? I know Les believes that, obviously, but do we believe that God is a generous God? You know, I think sometimes we, we know we should say yes, but sometimes, functionally speaking, we don't believe that He's a generous God. Sometimes we believe he's this kind of tight-fisted cheapskate where you have to try and pry his fingers open so that he can let loose some of the blessings in your life. At least that's how we kind of functionally live when we approach him and where we think of him in our lives. Friends, there's a passage, write it down, Psalm 1611, that I've just been enjoying lately, particularly as I've been speaking at memorial services and visiting people that, that are preparing to face eternity This passage has been so wonderful. The psalmist writes, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Does that sound like a cheapskate? No. I mean, if God were a cheapskate, friends, would He fill our worlds with such beauty? Would we feel the cool wind, soft grass, clownfish, toucans, puppies? If God were a cheapskate, would this world be full of such vibrant color and beauty and aroma and smell and taste? God cannot be a cheapskate because we look at the creation He's made and we see His abundant generosity and His abundant graciousness and goodness. But sometimes we do relate with Him. We try to relate with Him as if He were a tight-fisted cheapskate that we have to negotiate with Him. So, God, I'll be a better person. I'll go to church more. I'll read the Bible more. I'll share my faith more, all in a way to think maybe somehow I'll get God to like me. Friends, God 
loves us and likes us. And James says we can ask Him for wisdom because He'll give it generously, and He's going to do it without reproach. He's not going to say, don't you know better? Are you really asking me this? You should know already. No. He loves to hear His people say, Lord, I need wisdom to see the world the way you see it. Give that to me. He says He'll give it graciously and without reproach. Friends, think of the generosity of God. It'd be one thing if He just made like one species of fish and then dog and all these other things, but there's over 3,000 species of fish. It would be enough that He gave us vision and we could see primary colors We can see 16 million variations and shades of hues of colors. God's generosity is overflowing. He gives before we even recognize the need. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 32, arguing from the greater to the lesser, if He, giving up His own Son, how would He not then give us all the things we need? He's saying if, if God will give His very own Son... How would He not, with that gift, give you everything you're going to possibly need? It is never an issue of God's generosity. The issue is often we don't understand what the need actually is, right? And and can we be honest? Need is the most abused word in our culture, right? I mean, you know this if, you know, sometimes kids, you take them to the mall, Dad, I need this Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe doll! Like, you don't need that, right? But that word, we throw it around all the time. See, the issue is never God's generosity. The issue is we often don't understand what we actually need. And James is saying to get through life, we need God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom to make sense of our trials. We need God's wisdom to make sense of our choices. We need God's wisdom to make sense of the bad times. We need God's wisdom to make sense of the good times. So ask God for it because He will give it in loads and loads and loads. That's His point in verse 5. But James says, says this, though. The issue isn't God's generosity. God will give you the wisdom you need. The real issue is, are you ready for it? And that's what He's getting to in, in the later half of verse 6 and verse 8. So He says, this is how you ask for wisdom. So, So, verse 5, James is making it abundantly clear that God is committed and God is sincere in giving us what we need to progress to maturity, but in verses 6 through 8, James raises the question whether or not we are committed and we are sincere in receiving what God has to give. See, that's the relationship between verse 5 and verse 6. James is being very clear. God's committed and sincere to do whatever He needs to do to make you mature. The real issue is, are you as committed and sincere to be the kind of mature person He needs you to be? That's a whole other question. Are we ready to move forward with God? Are we truly willing to see life the way God sees life and prioritize our lives the way He wants us to prioritize our lives? Or... Do you have an escape plan planned out for you just in case? God's ready. Are you? Do you have a plan B if the whole Jesus thing doesn't work out? Are you committed is what James is getting at. Look at it. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God because God gives it generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is saying, God's mind on this is clear, but is yours double-minded? Do you really want what God has to give you? Because He will give it to you in loads. By way of contrast, what James is stating is that when we come to God, it cannot be with divided loyalties or divided allegiances. Kind of coming to Him, believing that He is the solution, but clinging on to the world just in case He doesn't work out for you, seeking His wisdom, but then going to the wisdom of the world just in case you're not quite sure you haven't decided. Hebrews eleven six says this, whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It's really powerful. In these two verses, James notes two problems that have two corresponding results. First problem, and they feed each other, by the way. James talks about doubting. Now, this isn't talking about uh, uh, intellectual uh, kind of commitment as much as it is a moral or spiritual commitment, not, not being committed, not making a decision or coming to a resolution about who God is. And as a result, that doubt leads to a double-mindedness, not coming to a decision about who determines reality, who determines the values and priorities of life. The natural result is instability in all of life because you're kind of halfway in with God, but you're still clinging on to the world. You're, you're thinking this is the right thing, but you're still holding on. That doubt, not coming to a firm decision, James says, leads to a double-mindedness and instability in all of life. And James' metaphor here, I think it's in verse 7, captures it beautifully. And we should not be surprised that James would use this, something a fisherman from the Sea of Galilee would be very familiar with, a storm-tossed sea. Have you ever seen the ocean angry with a storm? Have you ever seen that, what it looks like? This is what that person is like, James says. If you've ever seen it, growing up in the islands of Hawaii, I've seen it all the time. The waves surge this way, and then they surge this way. They ebb, and then they flow, and they come up and down, and they crash all over the place. James is saying the person who hasn't come to a decision on who God is is going to be like that man. That they're kind of going this way, and then they're going that way. They go forward, they go backward, up and down. They're unstable. Now, have you ever seen a lifeguard trying to rescue someone in a situation like that? It's not going to happen. It's not because the lifeguard doesn't want to help the individual. It's but that the individual is just all over the place, and there's no way for the help to be received. And James is saying the person who hasn't come to a decision on the character of God, that he's a generous God, that he will do what he will do, and that even though he will put you through trials and suffering, it is for your good so that you can rejoice in them. If you're not prepared for that, you can ask, but nothing's going to change. You're going to be like that ocean that's going back and forth. And you see it. I see it. Oh, hey, you're back fellowshipping with God's people again. That's good. Nope, gone. Where'd they go? I don't know. They were here last week. Oh, hey, man, good to see you in community group. Oh, your friends called you. You got a party. You can't be a part of what's going on here. Oh, hey, man, great to see you studying the Word of God, getting in it. Oh, got to binge, flicks, binge watch this new show on Netflix. Hey, you're getting involved, serving other people. Great. Oh, no, something better came along. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And God all the while saying, look, here, here I am. 
I'm not tossed to and fro. Right? All the metaphors that describe God are what? A mountain, right? It's kind of weird, a five foot eight, 150 pound guy saying that, but yeah, right? It's, God's a mountain. Stability, a rock, because He knows the world, and He knows us. We're all over the place. In one way, He says, look, I'm here. You know, as a pastor, I have this particular conversation. The details are, are always different. The people are always different, but it's the same conversation. I've been having it for 25 years. People's lives are all over the place, and they don't know what to do. They can be Christian or not Christian, and there's just a tangled mess, and they, they, they want to change, but, they, you know, what do they do? What do they do? And I say, let's make this simple. Let's bring some, some cosmos to the chaos. Let's just choose one thing. Hey, man, just, just meet me. Before I was a pastor, now I'm a pastor. Just meet me 9 a.m. Sunday morning. Just, just show up. I want to start with one little thing. Not because showing up to church is the magic bullet. It's not. But it's as, that's as easy as it gets. I mean, I'm throwing it right to the numbers here. All I'm saying is, you want to start making that path to change, just show up, meet with God's people, meet with God for two hours on Sunday. Just be here. Because if you're not willing to do, do just that, you're not going to be willing to crucify your flesh. You're not going to fight against sin. You are not going to do what is necessary to grow in holiness if you're not even willing to show up and sit down for two hours. Friends, we, we can talk a lot about how we want our lives to be different, but it's how we live our lives that what determines whether or not they're going to be different. And, and here's the great thing. God says, I want to meet with my people. I'll be here, I'll be here every Sunday at, well, except for today, 9 a.m., 1045. And if that time doesn't work, there's another great body of believers that meet at 8 a.m. down the street. Some meet at 11 a.m. up the street. Just show up. Just be there. And, and if that's too scary... Put it all in a book, all his thoughts and wisdom. Just read it any time. But we live in a world where we're tossed to and fro, going all over the place. And James says that kind of person, let me paraphrase it. He's saying if, if you are that kind of person, you won't receive anything from the Lord because you are saying with the way you live your life, you don't want to receive anything from the Lord. That's what he's saying. You have got to decide if he is. In the words of Hebrews, and a rewarder of the one who seeks him. So doubting and double-mindedness are the problems, and, and we've already alluded to some of those situations in our lives. I think verse 7, James is even saying that if you're doubting this way, if you haven't come to a decision on who God is, if you're not willing to commit to what He wants to do in your life, don't expect to get things from Him in prayer. Verse 7, I really think that's one of the applications of verse 7. And that kind of instability bleeds over into all of your life, by the way. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. My friends, we all need wisdom to understand life from the right perspective. God will give us this wisdom generously and without reproach to any who ask. But when we ask, we have to make sure it's not with divided loyalties. It's not with a plan B. You're throwing all your eggs into His baskets. He wants to give, but do you really want to receive what He wants to give? Godly wisdom sees things radically different from the way the world sees things. 
Not only does it view trials and suffering in a very different way, it also sees our poverty and wealth in a radically different light. In fact, how we handle our financial situations, whether you are the the poor brother or the rich brother, is perhaps the greatest trial to your Christian faith, isn't it? Which is probably why in verse 9 through 11, James makes this seemingly apparent abrupt jump talking to the rich and the poor because he's talking about being completely committed to the Lord, and if one thing will challenge our commitment to Christ, it's going to be the way we relate to wealth. And so James chooses to highlight that reality. So here's the test, verse 9 through 11, the application of wisdom according to James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his, uh, in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So notice, both the poor and the rich are encouraged to boast, but in very different circumstances. Did you pick up on that? The poor, James says, are to boast in their exaltation, and the rich are to boast in their humiliation. What is James getting at? He is reminding these believers that they must look beyond the world's evaluation to understand who they are and to look to God's view of them. And again, that's going to require wisdom because there are very few things in life like our financial situation that will present us with opportunities and trials and filter the way we see the world. And James is saying that cannot be the way you see the world. You need the wisdom of God to not base your self-evaluation on your financial situation because you are way more than your poverty or your wealth. Friends, this in a nutshell is wisdom to be able to see all of life through a God-centered lens. We are constantly seeing our world and ourselves through the storyline of this culture. We cannot help but do that. Wisdom is being able to step out of the cultural flow enough to say, I need to see myself the way God sees me and my situation. So the poor brother must remember his exalted position in Christ, that though they might be poor in this world, they are co-heirs with Christ, standing to inherit all the riches of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Christ, who was the prince, who was rich and rich beyond imagination, made himself poor by coming to this earth so that through his poverty, you would inherit his riches, is what the poor should remember And the rich should remember that the depths of their depravity and humiliation that God had to save them from and recognize that that is their true wealth. So the poor should remember the riches that God has established to them, and the wealthy should remember the humiliation that God had to save them from. Each of them, however, boasts not in their financial situation, but in the work of Christ on their behalf, is James's point. They both boast in what God has done. This is simply what Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says. Notice five times Jeremiah the prophet says we are to boast. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
Our ultimate boast has nothing to do with the things of this world. Our boast is in the gospel because we know God. Friends, I need to conclude, but let me say this. James chose to illustrate the need for God's wisdom in understanding trials by focusing on the very thing that often tries our faith the most, which is money. That happens to be what James chose because it was very relevant to his community's context, probably just as relevant to our context. But James could have equally chosen any of life's contrasts to highlight how we need God's wisdom to see ourselves. He just happened to chose uh, poverty and wealth. He could have chose loneliness and companionship. He could have chose the contrast along married life and unexpected bereavement. He could have chosen health and illness, work and unemployment. These are just some of the endless variety of the various trials of verse 2 that he talked about. Contrasts that we could make are as varied as are the people in this room. Marriage and singleness, children and infertility, abundance and lack, intelligence, inability. I mean, the list could be endless. Life is like that. What James is saying is that if that's the way you're making sense of life, you're missing God's perspective entirely. You need God's wisdom. So, one writer says this, how then are we to steer a straight path to the goal of maturity? How are we to see what is of stable worth and what, a, what is a tinsel of disappointment and loss? Only by the wisdom of God a wisdom that makes us see earth in light of the heavens, that makes us see this life in light of eternal life, the flickering pattern of experience in the light of the steady reality of salvation. We need wisdom from God. I need to conclude here, but it's interesting how in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, in keeping with the Old Testament, the value of wisdom, that wisdom is found in the gospel. Wisdom is found in the foolishness of the cross. That is the most radically perspective-changing reality the world will ever understand. It starts there because God has called every one of us to an upside-down kingdom where to be first, we are to be last. To be the greatest, you are the servant. And we need wisdom to live that way. I pray that God gives it to us. Let's pray. Father, we recognize we are a needy people. How can we not read this text and not realize our desperate need? But how can we not rejoice? Because verse 5 says, if we recognize that we need it, we can come to you who gives it graciously without reproach. Father, give us the wisdom to be a countercultural people. Give us the wisdom to be a peculiar people, not striving after the things of the world, but living for the things that matter. Help us, give us the wisdom to see what those things are as we fellowship with one another, as we study the Word together, as we live life together, calling one another out of this world, but for the world, but more importantly, for your glory and the good of your people. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.